I drove out of my driveway this morning and took a right where I normally come to the church, and there was a tree right across the road. I had to turn around, reverse course, and go a different direction. I bet some of you ran into some obstacles trying to get here. I see a hand out there. It did strike me, and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it did strike me that the enemy would really love to do everything he could to throw obstacles in the way of his people hearing the word that we are sharing in this season. Because we're talking about what it means to be a disciple for Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus. We're talking about what real discipleship, not just churchianity, looks like. The enemy doesn't want his people, the, our people, God's people. The enemy does not want him to, uh, does not want us to hear that message. And so it doesn't surprise me. So I want to just uh, applaud you for overcoming whatever obstacles were in your way. And thanks to the fire department for helping us get here. By the way, uh, Chief John. Whether it was a tree or a football game, here you are instead. And, uh, and I, I believe the Lord wants to meet us this morning. We are making a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about what it means to be a revolutionary disciple for Jesus Christ. And here's what's really revolutionary about the things that Jesus teaches. Here it is. It's all about the heart. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you realize it is all about the heart. It is not just external behaviors, although those things matter. But Jesus has to take us deeper. He tells his people, it's not enough. It's not enough that we don't commit murder. Jesus burrows into our heart and says, my disciples don't nurse grudges. He says, it's not enough that we don't commit adultery. He says, my disciples don't cultivate lust. He says it's not enough that we have a good reason to get divorced. Jesus burrows into our hearts and says, my disciples fight for their marriages because they are sacred. And that's just chapter 5. If your heart is truly surrendered to Christ, you are going to behave in ways that are revolutionary in this culture. You just have to see that. If you don't stand out something like a sore thumb once in a while, you are probably not living in obedience to what Christ calls us to. Because we are the culture that gets even when we get offended. We are the culture that hands out condoms to our students because they are animals who cannot control their sexual urges. We are the culture that trades spouses like cars. We are the culture that looks for loopholes to get out of contracts rather than keeping our word. You, as disciples of Jesus, could live in a culture like ours and yet forgive grievances and turn your eyes away from impure images and stay married to the same person for life and keep your word regardless of what's convenient that is revolutionary that is countercultural and that is one chapter of the sermon on the mount and it's exactly what Jesus expects of us he said why do you call me lord lord and do not do what i say in some ways it's the most provocative question jesus asks why do you call me lord lord if you are not going to obey me he says There's a saying in the South, you just moved from preaching to meddling. And Jesus, he meddles with our life through the whole Sermon on the Mount. And as we listen to this, if we take it seriously, first of all, we have to decide, does Jesus have the right to meddle in our lives? And then we have to decide what we're going to do about it. I was shaking hands after the first service and a woman came up to me and she said, I'm not going to say thank you because that was a horrible sermon. It wasn't a criticism, and I didn't take it as a criticism. She said, that word is too hard, and I can't possibly say thank you. 
Not yet. And she was exactly right. So Jesus preached a horrible sermon. I'm hoping I can follow in his footsteps. So let's turn to the text for the morning. Matthew chapter 5, the last portion of it. Really listen to God's word. Verse 38, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. This is a horrible sermon, Jesus, because it calls us to something we cannot possibly do. And I look upon the faces of those coming out after second service who are asking, how can I possibly do this? The answer is we cannot, not in our own strength, but we pray that you will change our hearts as we seek to be obedient to you and we will be a reflection of the love of God in this world. Begin now as we turn our hearts to this matter. In Jesus' name, amen. Three weeks ago, Presbytery was held at my old church, First Press, in Bakersfield, California, where I served for nine years, and uh, so I got to take the team down, and we visited all of the haunts. There aren't that many haunts in Bakersfield, as it turns out, but we went to both of them, and, um, and one of the things that I, I got to do was lead them through a tour of the building that I spent a lot of my life in for nine years, and I cannot walk into the old fireside room without remembering what took place in there. It was one of the most bizarre experiences in my ministerial life. I was a brand new assistant pastor, newly minted, and I had responsibility for three of the session committees. We all met on the same night, all our committees did, which obviously meant I couldn't be at all of the meetings at the same time, so I'd go to one, then I'd go to the other, and then I'd go to the next. One night when I walked late into the Christian education meeting, it was clear that one of the elders there was ticked at me for making him wait. And so I sat down, and after a few preliminaries, he made it clear that he was not happy with the fact that he had to wait. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Paul. You get me off of those other two committees, and I will be here every time, right on time. And he replied, well, isn't that just too damned bad? And he leaned across, and he slapped me. And he slapped me so hard that the people that were meeting in the room next door heard it. And so I jumped up. And then he jumped up, and I got right in his face, and I was seething, and I said, I ought to put you on the ground. And he said, go ahead and try. (laughs) And I managed to not swing 
And I walked out of the room and into the night. And what I did not say, however, was, Elder Brown, here's my other cheek. Would you take another swing? Today we move to the most outrageous of Jesus' demands in this sermon. In the Old Testament times, uh, if you were harmed, the appropriate response was overwhelming force so that you never think about doing it again. So if, if someone knocked your tooth out, you might kill him. If someone raped your daughter, you rounded up your friends and wiped out their entire village. It was brutal, overwhelming response of, of power and vengeance. Then along comes the God Yahweh, and he gives a new principle. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It was a, the principle of proportionality. So if someone knocked out your tooth, you could not kill him for it. If someone poked out your eye, it, you could not order his village to be destroyed or his children to be executed. When we read eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth today, we think, gosh, that's brutal. At the time that it was given, it was actually a law of merciful restraint in a culture that said, take them all, take them all out if they offend you. But once again, Jesus, when it comes time for him to teach about the Old Testament, which, by the way, he wrote, just a reminder, when he begins to teach about it, he takes them deeper. He says, if someone slaps you on your cheek, I know you have the right to slap them back, but don't demand your rights. Throw him a curveball. Let him slap the other cheek too. But he didn't stop there. He said, see, most people at the time of Jesus, they wore just two garments, an outer garment and an inner garment. Jesus said, if someone steals your outer garment, take off your inner garment, stand there in your birthday suit, and give them that one as well. At the time of Jesus, uh, the, the Roman soldiers had the right to compel anyone they wanted to to carry their load for a certain distance, only a certain distance. It was, as you might imagine, galling. How would you like to be conscripted by the police officer to say, you must do this for me, you must carry this for me. Jesus said, when a soldier makes you carry his load for a mile, when you reach the end of that mile, say, could I carry this another mile for you? Jesus is saying in these things, listen, I know you have rights, But if you want to be my disciples, one of the things you need to learn is to give up your rights. And all of this is outrageous, isn't it? All of this is outrageous. Asking for another slap or giving more to the thief who have stolen from you or being kind to an oppressor, it is outrageous. But we ain't heard nothing yet. Now comes the real outrage. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This radical teaching of Jesus has provoked some of the most significant social change in human history. It was this passage that compelled Gandhi, who was a fan of Jesus, but wasn't a big fan of Jesus' followers, to lead his movement in India. Martin Luther King Jr. was also inspired by this passage of Scripture. And both of them understood in a deep way what was at at play here. It was this. You never break the cycle of violence with more violence. Something that the Israelis and the Hamas still have not learned. 
You never break the silence, the, the, the cycle of violence with more violence. Someone has to stop. But it is outrageous to be the one that has to stop. Love your enemy? It's revolutionary. But it's more than that. It's more than that. I dare say of all of Jesus' radical teachings, that enemy love is the defining quality of the Christian faith. Was it not enemy love that chose God to send His only begotten Son to the earth as a Savior? We read in Romans, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, another word for enemy. Enemies of God. And yet God, in His enemy love, sent His Son to die for us. It was enemy love that compelled Jesus to leave Gethsemane where He was struggling with whether to do this and to go up onto Calvary. And He hung there dying and says, Father, forgive them. That's enemy love. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It is true, Jesus taught that we should, that the world should know that we are Christians by the way that we love each other. But here I, I think Jesus goes even deeper. Because he says even the sleaziest tax collector loves someone who loves him back. But you, you my disciples, you're going to forgive your enemies. No, more than that, you're going to be kind to your enemies. No, more than that. You're going to love your enemies. That's what my disciples do. You might have heard someone in response to this horrible teaching say something along these lines. Okay, well, I may love my enemy, but Jesus didn't say I have to like them. And we we think that that gives us an out. Actually, it misses the point entirely. Because what we are really saying when we say that is, all right, I will behave nicely toward my enemy, but I have no feelings of tenderness, kindness, or compassion toward them, and I have no plans to seek to cultivate those feelings either. But when we make this approach to this teaching, isn't that exactly the kind of legalism that Jesus is condemning in the rest of this sermon? Behave properly on the outside, but as for the inside, you go ahead. Believe whatever you want. Feel whatever you want. Carry a grudge. Nurture a grudge. Harbor awful, mean, vile thoughts to them, but behave nicely on the outside. Can we really believe that this is what Jesus is teaching here? When Jesus loved his enemies, he wept for us, so great was his compassion. Jesus was described as the shepherd who goes after the sheep. Why? Because he had compassion on them because they were lost. Enemy love might start by changing our behavior, and it's a good starting point. Enemy love might start by our changing our behavior, but ultimately Jesus wants to change our hearts. Here's the point where this goes from a nice theoretical, theological sermon to being deeply personal, because now I ask the question, so who is your enemy? Not in principle, not in generic terms. Who is your enemy? Who is the person in your life that Jesus is speaking to you about in this passage? Who's the real flesh and blood person who despises you or harms you or puts you down? What is the face that comes to mind? Is there someone who hates you and maybe someone whom you hate in return? And perhaps with good reason. I mean, these emotions don't arise out of nothing. They did you dirt. They cheated you. They cheated on you. 
They continue to do that. They lie about you. Or worse yet, they abandon you or abuse you in some awful way. It is understandable that feelings of hate would, would well up within you. They are your enemy if they do these things to you. That's what you do to your enemies. You hate them. And you need to hate them in order to depersonalize them. And you need to depersonalize them in order to destroy them. Because that's what we do to enemies. Unless we are the revolutionary disciple of Jesus. And then he says, we love our enemies. That's his command. Jesus says, I know it's hard. It's easy when... You love the one who loves you, but I'm calling you to the hard thing. I'm calling you to love those who hate and mistreat you in the same way that I loved you when you hated and mistreated me. But where do we start? How do we begin such an awful journey? Jesus is very clear. What's the first step? Love your enemies and what? And pray. Pray for those who persecute you. The starting point for this impossible enemy love is to pray for those who persecute you. When we pray for our enemies, it is through our prayers that God begins to purge the poison of hatred from our hearts. And it is through those prayers that we begin to find the courage to treat our enemies with an undeserved kindness. And amazingly, it is often because of those prayers and those actions that are feelings begin to follow our actions. I have found this to happen again and again. You act first out of obedience, but you act and astoundingly God in His grace begins to cause your feelings to follow your actions. So you pray and you act. You want to love an unlovely person? Treat them with love. And perhaps in God's mercy your heart will begin to follow. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the command that it is astounding how that happens, and it is the only way that it will happen. Now, here's a tough question. Are there limits to enemy love? Someone asked me after service, okay, what about these, these terrorists that are cutting off children's heads? I would say, first of all, that the command to love your enemies is a personal command. I'm not commanded to love someone else's enemy the decision for me to take risk and sacrifice is a decision I can make only for myself. Not for a child. Not for another. It's only for me. So that, that would be one response that came out of very, a very honest question. And yes, I think there are limits to the way that we exercise enemy love. I cannot imagine that Jesus would say to the wife who's being abused and beaten to return to that and take more. I cannot imagine that Jesus would say to the child, return to your sexual abuser, your enemy, and take more. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was slapped in his trial in John chapter 18, he didn't turn the other cheek. He confronted the person who slapped him. It is important to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is actually a sermon full of hyperbole. That means uh, extreme teaching that evokes passionate response. Jesus talks about poking out your eye, cutting off your hand. So we we need to understand that literary device in this context. But even understanding that does not mean that we don't see Jesus as taking this deadly seriously. He is absolutely serious about this. 
He is serious about this revolutionary idea that we should respond to hatred with love. That's the only way you break that violent cycle. He is serious that in a a culture that is quick to blame, quick to sue, quick to enrich ourselves at the cost of others, quick to retaliate, that his disciples should be conspicuous because we choose to withhold blame. We choose to offer grace to those who would harm us or hate us. I listened to a remarkable interview last week from a man named Dan Bauman. He and a friend went into Iran on an adventure. And on the way out, they were stopped at the border. They were arrested. Their passports were taken from them. They were thrown into the dungeon. And then they were taken out nearly every day. They were taken out. He he was taken out by the same guards and beaten by the same uh, guard over and over again, brutally. Um, I want you to listen to part of that interview. God began to challenge me with his love for our enemies. And he said this, he's like, Dan, ask me what I think about this man. And he asked me the question about the man who was my interrogator, the man who beat me, the man who seemed to hate me the most. And it was a few days into it that I finally asked God, okay, yeah, what do you think of this man? And at that moment, yeah, my heart opened up and I began to see God's love for this man how he loved him from the beginning, how he made him, how he loved his family. And I'll never forget the last day I saw him. I remember on this day thinking, oh my gosh, what's he going to do today? And at that moment, I remember looking at him and I said this. I said, sir, if I'm going to see you the rest of my life every day, why don't we become friends? He's like, no, that's impossible. And I said, sir, you can start by telling me your name. And I stuck out my hand to him and I said, Sir, let's be friends. And as I stuck out my hand to shake his hand, he just stood there and he froze. And after a few minutes, he started to shake. And then all of a sudden, I saw his hand creep towards mine and he shook my hand. And as he's shaking my hand, I saw these tears start to roll down his face. And for about 10 minutes, he just shook my hand and tears streaming down his face. And he finally looks at me and he says this. He's like, Dan. And he calls me by my name. My name is Razak. And I would love to be your friend. And it caused me to see that there is no heart too hard for Jesus. That he can change the hardest heart. God taught me to love my enemy. As a result of that encounter in the prison he knew of at least three prison guards that gave their lives to Christ. You know, one of the hard things about being a preacher is that before you ever have to sit down and listen to this, I have to listen to it to myself. I have to listen to what the Lord is doing in me with this word that I'm going to share with you, at least if I'm going to have any integrity about this calling. And and the Lord has been using this on me in a hard way these last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, I was considering the passage that says if you're taking a gift to the altar and you suddenly remember someone has an offense against you, leave the gift there and go and make peace with your brother. And then, of course, I come to this passage today about loving and praying for your enemy, and I suddenly knew that I had what I had to do. And I remembered a, a person who feels like my enemy to me. And I'm pretty sure that they view me in the same way. And I knew I could not preach this sermon without trying to do something about it. 
And so, in obedience to the Lord, I, I wrote a simple note. I lamented in that note our broken relationship. I offered to take a step toward reconciliation, including a face-to-face meeting at a place of their choosing. And then, to be wise, I gave the note to a trusted advisor, and I said, would you read this, please? And they read it, and they said, send it. And so I did. And I have no idea what the response will be, if there is any response. But I realized as I wrote it that I meant what I was writing from the bottom of my heart. I lament the brokenness of our relationship. I lament my part in it. And I don't want to be enemies for the rest of our lives. I want God to heal that. So we will see what he will do. There are very few of us here this morning who don't have someone who would count as an enemy. And there's some of you who would say, yeah, I love your enemies, right. But if Jesus knew my enemy, he would would know what he's asking. But he does. And he does. He, He knows your enemy. He knows what they've done. He knows the bondage that you're in because you hold on to bitterness or unforgiveness. But if you were to obey him, if you were to begin to pray for your enemy and act kindly towards your enemy, who knows what Jesus might do through that to change their heart and to change your heart. I cannot tell you what you must do about this. What would be right for one person might be unwise and even dangerous for another person. So I can't prescribe this to you. All I can do is share it with you and pray that the Holy Spirit will guide you to do what you must do in your situation. But I can tell you this. We who claim the name of Christ are really good at making excuses for disobeying the hard things that Jesus calls us to do. Let me say it again. We who claim to be followers of Christ are really good at making excuses to avoid doing the hard things Jesus calls us to do. And you need to come to a point where you decide, am I going to keep making excuses or am I going to be a disciple of Jesus? I cannot tell you how your enemy will respond if you act out in love towards them. But I can tell you, if Jesus tells you to do this, it will not be wasted. That act of reconciliation, that act of kindness, it will not be wasted. Even if you get no response from them, not the response you hope for anyway, your obedient act of enemy love will not be wasted. Would you like to hear the end of my slapping story? Years later when I was here, I, um, received, I heard a knock on our door, our house. And I went to the door and there was Elder Brown standing at the door. And he wouldn't even come in. Um, but he said, the moment I slapped you was one of the worst of my life. I have regretted it ever since. Will you forgive me? And I said, of course I'll forgive you. And he threw himself into my arms and wept until the front of my shirt was, was wet. I never saw him again. And he died a few years ago. But it was one of the sweetest and most unlikely moments of restoration I've ever experienced. But I couldn't help but wonder how hard it was for him to drive up to Gig Harbor 
and show up at my doorstep not knowing how I would respond. That took guts, didn't it? But he was obedient. It was a hard thing. He was obedient. May I ask you this morning, what is the hard command of Jesus that you're having a hard time obeying? What is the hard command of Jesus that you need to obey in order to be a follower of his? You can't read through the Sermon on the Mount and find a few of them, actually. There's a few of them in there for me. That's what happens when we actually begin to take Jesus seriously. So we'd like to help. It's easy to come. We listen. We say, oh, yeah, I ought to do that. Out through the doors of amnesia, boom, it's gone. So what can we do to persist in this? So the session came up with an idea. And it's the month of November. We're going to call this Covenant's Month. Here's what we're asking us to do. I don't say you, I say us. This is what we are going to do together. We want to spend the month of November considering our discipleship. What kind of a disciple are we before the Lord Jesus? And so we are going to take this, this sermon that we have been teaching through and we're going to break it down into little chunks every day. And we're going to ask you, would you read one part of the Sermon on the Mount every day? Every day! And would you write down what Jesus is teaching you to do, telling you to do? And in there you'll find uh, testimonies from elders and pastors and other leaders that, of how we have tried to implement this in our life. And again, we're saying, Holy Spirit, take your word and speak to my heart. Not me telling you what you need to do, God telling you what you need to do. And then we're going to come together on something we're calling Covenant Sunday. And on the basis of this work, we're going to fill out a commitment card. We're calling it a covenant card. It will be private. It will be confidential. You'll be the only one that sees what's in it. But we're going to fill that out and we're going to bring it forward as an act of worship and we're going to place it in a box and we're going to say, I'm going to make a covenant before God to live as a more faithful disciple and these are the things the Holy Spirit is telling me that I need to do. In addition, every Wednesday during November, we're going to call us to a season of prayer and fasting. Every Wednesday. We're going to, to the whole church, would you not eat and would you pray that day and then we will break our fast together at the table. On the the Saturday before Covenant Sunday, we're going to have a 24-hour chain of prayer that I hope we'll have hundreds of people participating in. Even our Serve Saturday in two weeks is another opportunity for us to put our money, our lives, ourselves, where our mouths are by coming and serving in the name of Jesus. So that's what we are challenging you to do. That's what we're inviting you to do. I hope you will join me with this. We're going to take the commands of Jesus seriously. Now, I realize that here, honestly, there are some of you that are not serious followers of Christ. You're likely going to take this and you walk out with it so that it doesn't look too obvious, but you're going to go home and you're going to chuck it or just set it aside. And you're going to continue along in your superficial churchianity because you're happy with that. But if you want to be a revolutionary, obedient disciple of Jesus, then I challenge you to join me in this journey. What's that? You're in? Thank you. Wow, I see hands up. All right, if you'll accept the challenge, raise your hand. All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening to the Spirit on that. Amazing, Presbyterians that listen to the Spirit. What are you going to (laughs) do? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that hand of leadership. And I think for the others that follow and say, Lord, we don't want to play at church. We don't want to play churchianity. We want to be 
transformed, revolutionary, radical followers of Jesus that make a difference in this world. We want to stick out like sore thumbs so that the world might know that there's something else, something different, something better than what the world offers. So, God, would you go about this work in our hearts and in our lives, and in this next month, would you change us as we make a deeper covenant with you? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.